Hello and welcome to Software Tech Talks. I'm Zoe Cunningham. Hello. Uh, welcome, everyone. Welcome. My name is Zoe Cunningham. I'm a director at Software and I host the Software Tech Talks podcast. Uh, welcome to this Digital Lighthouse Tech Talk. On the Digital Lighthouse, we get inspiration from tech leaders to help us shine a light through turbulent times so that we can learn, act and change as a result for the benefit of our businesses. We believe that if you have a lighthouse, you can harness the power of the storm. Uh, so a warm welcome to uh, all of our listeners. Today, we're going to be uh, talking with technology consultant Kevin Henning, and we will take uh, questions. We'll host a Q&A at the end of the session. And if you are not familiar with Twitter Spaces functionality, <laughs> we have been finding out what, what, all the, uh, what all the features are. There is a, um, a fantastic ability to turn on captions. So if you have any hearing impairments, uh, you can, from the settings function, turn on captions. Uh, you can also send emojis if you feel very moved by our discussion. And you have the ability to share this event on your own Twitter timeline from the right hand side. On the left, you'll see there is a, uh, a request button with a microphone. Um, when we do the Q&A, this is the way that you can request to ask a question. And then uh, we will monitor that and then we will uh, bring people online uh, to ask Kevin questions. Uh, just to let you know, this is being recorded and will be available to listen back um, immediately after the event ends on uh, at Software UK Twitter for 30 days. And we'll also be sending out um, the recording and some highlights in an email next week. So if you um, joined us without registering on Eventbrite, we can add you to the list if you'd like to get the email. Just DM us at Software UK. So, uh, Kevlin, our guest today, has a long career in software consulting. In addition, he's been the columnist for many magazines and sites, including The Register. He's the co-author of two volumes in the Pattern-Oriented Software Architecture series, editor of 97 Things Every Programmer Should Know, and co-editor of 97 Things Every Java Programmer Should Know, and you may also know him from his many speeches and keynote speeches at conferences. So, hello, Kevin. Yeah, right. So, right. here is the discovery. So, hello, Zoe. Hello. We're going we're to talk about technology, aren't we? Um, it, it turns out that when um, I uh, moved my phone, um, it went from um, uh, portrait to landscape mode and it dropped me out of spaces. Um, which is an exciting feature. Nice one, Twitter. Uh, so, uh, so, Kevin, were they programming for the past when they when they? Yeah, the yeah. actually, that's a really. So, this is one of the this is one of the interesting things. So, there's this um, uh, there is this interesting uh, thought I had um, a few months ago. It occurred to me um, that. Although I've been saying this for years, I've never quite encapsulated it uh, quite so succinctly, um, that 
most of the time we are programming for the past. Um, this is a reference to the fact that when a developer sits down and touches a piece of code, the chances are that that code was written in the past. It was written with the past assumptions. In fact, in a given eight-hour day, a developer is likely to spend seven to seven and a half hours, if not the whole eight hours, dealing with all of the issues that came from the past. And that's not just simply a question of legacy code, it's legacy assumptions as well. Um, and here we have the assumption that clearly somebody from uh, Twitter Spaces had, uh, who developed this had a very <laughs> particular view um, about what mobile phones are and what their setup is. Um, in other words, it was brittle with respect to their setup. Um, and, uh, and we're kind of stuck with that, which is kind of an interesting consequence. But more broadly, there is this question that when people actually sit down to touch a piece of code, they are, although we have this idea of technology is all about the future, we're building the future, um, most of the time people are pulled back into the past. And that is, that is legacy code, that is um, traditional assumptions. It's also legacy languages and legacy um, uh, frameworks. Um, it's all positioned in very much in the past. I think perhaps if you are doing a startup, um, you are in the privileged position to possibly be doing something near the present, although it might not be the future. Closer to the present. Yeah. Is it is it a generational thing? Is it that older programmers also have their own... They're bringing all the assumptions of how they've always coded things before, or is it everyone? I think I think the thing is that every I think that it's not necessarily a, the, I don't think there is a generational distinction, but I think it's now more amplified. Um, the because software runs the world and uh, everything that we do affects somebody else. That um, in the past, what was uh, the scope of legacy systems uh, was in one sense much smaller. Um, you know, the fact that perhaps, um, in fact, dealing with my interactions this morning, my frustrations, let's, let's put it that way, um, my frustrations this morning um, with uh, trying to book a hotel site, sorry, trying to book a hotel uh, via their site. And I, uh, and I was struck again by this classic problem, I'm sure we've all experienced it, where the website says something else, and it, it says one thing, and then you find out, actually, there's probably another database in the background. Um, in other words, a classic legacy system that there's multiple databases. I remember trying to change my address at my bank um, a couple of decades ago. So, and that was almost impossible because it turns out that there was one database somewhere that had my information on it. It was probably written in COBOL and it was the previous address. It took about two or three years to get this one sorted. Now, that was relatively isolated in a very personal experience, but now it's much more available. Um, on the web. Um, and actually, that's what I encountered with this particular hotel site. Um, I, I, I tried booking yesterday for something. Tried booking, failed. Tried today, failed. Tried a different browser, you know, the usual kind of thing. And then eventually decided I would resort to old-fashioned technology and rang them up. And they told me there was no availability. And I said, well, I'm looking at a page here that says there's availability. Just won't let me book. Well, we have the actual numbers. So this company um, uh, that I was dealing with, this hotel company, had that multiple database problem, um, and that's now far more visible uh, elsewhere. So they had the privileged access, whereas the shiny front end that everybody uses actually is working on stale data. And this is not some kind of eventual consistency problem. I think that, you know, one expects that 24 hours is enough for any, um, <laughs> it should be enough to synchronize. Um, and so they have got a coherence issue. So I think that it's not so much, I think older programmers are just as bad at, um, 
are no better than younger programmers and vice versa. Um, uh, with one exception, they've probably been bitten by it more times and are more likely to ask certain questions. Um, but these uh, assumptions, both of um, the users, but also um, the existing systems, I think are, um, until it slows down, I think every generation is going to be slightly overwhelmed and surprised by it. I love that point, that it's talking about slowing down. Obviously, this is linked to the fact, right, there used to be fewer <laughs> the The quantity of legacy code is just increasing yeah. so quickly. Yeah. Uh, as the rate of development increases. Um, yeah, what, I mean, and, and I suppose code just doesn't really get decommissioned in the same way, or very rarely, we're just always kind of building on top of things that are already there. Yeah, I, I think that's, that is very true. In fact, a, a discussion um, earlier this year, Possibly last year, these days, you know, who knows, um, uh, the last few years all kind of merged into a blur. Um, but at some point in the last couple of years, I actually went and checked when the term legacy came into being. And it, it, it started being used in this context, the context we now use it, in uh, the end of the 1980s. There was legacy code before that, and people were already seeing that there were problems, but they didn't have a name for it. They didn't recognize that that would actually be one of the fundamental issues we confront. And the point that you make is that there's this notion that code doesn't get decommissioned, I think is an important one. Um, and it's not a necessary, it's, it's not, it's not a necessary truth of code. Um, I'm kind of intrigued by this possibility. I'll come to that in a moment. But I remember, running a workshop a few years ago and talking to this old guy who probably kind of been there um, uh, and, and seen it all, um, but very much an old school embedded systems programmer. And we were talking about architecture. I was in that workshop. And he made a throwaway comment, which I didn't understand. And he was really down and very negative on layered architectures. And I thought, well, hang on, layering is how we, one of the ways we up complexity. You know, it's, otherwise it just becomes a big mush. Uh, without layering, you, you kind of don't really know where you are in a large system. It's, it's one of the means by which we orient ourselves um, and say, oh, this layer is about this technology, uh, or it's this team, or it's this domain. We, we use these kind of separations, and I thought it's one of the fundamental, it's a classic idea that dates back to the 1960s. So I kind of asked him a little bit, and he, you know, I probed a little bit further, and and... It turns out he, his understanding of layering was quite different to mine, but actually surprisingly valid. What he called layering was um, where you built an, oh, a new system on top of the ashes or the, the broken APIs of a previous system and keep on going. Like the kind of tilting on the bottom. Yeah, of the yeah. And just like, you know, um, you know, whenever you know, in cities like London, this happens all the time. Whenever you have somebody's building, uh, you know, uh, uh, putting up a new building, um, half the time, construction stops because you've come across, you know, old, uh, uh, Roman remains um, or, or some Anglo-Saxon settlement. And quite literally, we build our, our civilization on, uh, on the remains of the previous one. And that was his perspective on layering. That it, it wasn't an abstraction. It was it was what we now consider legacy layering, wrapping. Um, and that, I thought, was a really interesting perspective. It was like, yeah, it's a different kind of, it's archaeological layering rather than layering by abstraction. Um, and I don't think it's necessary that code should be this old or that old code should be a problem. Um, I think that that is a, a curious dysfunction of the industry. 
Um, and it goes back to that point about we have not slowed down and consolidated. Um, I think uh, when everything's in a rush, you have no reason to stop. Um, when loads of money comes into the industry, as I said before, software basically runs the world. We don't have a reason to kind of stop and consolidate and take stock. I think many individuals feel that we probably should, but that's not the pace of the industry. It's always moving forward. So that gives us, again, that idea that we're always forward looking. And yet, actually, most of what we do, um, the work, today's work is mostly created by yesterday rather than the future, if that makes sense. Um, uh, it's, um, it's, it's based in part on a, an idea from a, a John Seddon, a systems thinker, um, that uh, a lot of what we do is failure demand as opposed to value demand. We are working because of something else not working or causing problems. So therefore, we have to do more work to respond to that and build on that rather than things that are actually genuinely novel and distinct. Um, so we are we are taking one step forward, but that or that's the overall effect. But actually, we're taking eight steps forward against the seven steps we just took back. Um, and that then it feels a little bit like that. I think it's very interesting, this idea that we're kind of all caught up in this massive pace of change. Mm -hmm. And almost everyone as an individual, you should say, oh, well, we, we, should, we should all slow down and, and fix up all our co-bases. And actually, as an individual, we're always just, just caught in it and we, we yeah. don't have that, that ability. What are the kind of implications of that um, in terms of, you know, as a developer, What's your kind of moral responsibility in terms of coding for the future? Oh, that's a good, that's a good question because I think that there is this idea is that, again, this, this is a difficulty we have with being human, um, is that when we do try and think of the future, we either draw a blank or we tend to latch onto one particular idea of what the future will hold. And it's normally a personal preference based on our own experience. And we see this in code bases that a lot of complexity that gets added is not simply cumulative. That's the archaeological layering that we we're just talking about. Some of what gets added um, is speculation. And speculation is this wonderful capacity mm -hmm. that human beings have um, to imagine alternative possible futures. I mean, this is actually, you know, that's a huge cognitive breakthrough. This is really powerful. The problem is that we then get attached to this and then put it in our code. With the, the code becomes littered with the speculation. You know, we sit there going, what if? And we go, yeah, that's great. What if somebody wants to, you know, I had this with one team many years ago. Uh, what if we try and add a different persistence mechanism? What if we do this? And their code base was littered with interfaces and hook methods and, uh, and all kinds of bits and pieces, none of which were ever going to be fulfilled. Or rather, only one future was going to actually happen. Um, and what they were carrying on a day-to-day -day basis with them was the weight, um, the cognitive weight of all of this speculation. They created more work for themselves, or more importantly, other people um, who will come after them in the future. Whereas what we should be doing with speculation is using it to kind of like find the simpler solution. What if we did it like this? What if this came to pass? Well, I'll tell you what, I won't have that function. Um, because it will be easier in the future when we know what we need. But there's also another element that that notion. So either we over-design, but uh, we over-design for one version of the future, or we fail to account for probably most often shifting assumptions. And the, the, the moral responsibility here um, is very much, it goes back to what we were talking about before, is the way that pretty much most systems these days are 
connected. Now, that was not immediately obvious a few years ago. That was not obvious that everything would inevitably end up connected uh, in the way that it, that it is now. Um, the idea is that, you know, yes, we have PCs. Yes, we can connect to other servers, but we still run applications. But now, with the rise of open, open source software, little pieces of code that a developer somewhere puts together and generously, if the open source is a, is a gifted culture, generously gives to the world, they don't know where that's going to end up. Um, and it might actually have some limitations. Um, uh, I'll refer to the left pad incident in 2016, which was a piece of JavaScript that was for string padding. Now, really, people shouldn't be using anything online for string padding. That's kind of a thing you write in about two or three lines of code. But nonetheless, this was offered and it was withdrawn and it pulled down a lot of sites with it. Um, uh, it was over a licensing disagreement. And what I found interesting is investigating this, looking into this, is one, sadly, although it's a gift, the code was not great. It had some errors in it. And yet people were... <laughs> it, it, was, yeah. it was maybe like second or third best present, not best present. Yeah, exactly, yeah. And it was, you know, it's fine to put stuff out there, but it's that curious thing that sometimes when we put stuff out there, we don't know who's necessarily going to use it. We don't necessarily know how effective that code was. Mm. Um, and it was only when I actually tried to write a simpler version of it, just, just for a talk, I wrote some tests, because that's the kind of thing that I do. Um, I, I, so the, I wrote some tests. And when I, I, I ran the tests, and uh, they failed. Um, for uh, two or three cases. I thought, that's funny. This, this code is used across tens of thousands of sites and nobody's ever actually bothered testing it, which uh, was a, a slight shock. So there, there, I think there is a bit of a moral responsibility there. And sometimes it's accidental. Um, one of the reasons I do write more tests than, uh, than I used to for talks is particularly one company. I used to uh, throw together example code. You know, where we'd be talking in a session talking things about whiteboard, they shouldn't be their code. And I'd go, okay, well, you need something like this. And we'd sketch it out, but I'd try and offer them code to make it a little more real. Now, I have this particular company I have in mind, I have a long relationship with. So there I am two years later doing a code review, and suddenly there's this kind of disconnect in the code style. And I'm looking at it going, well, this is really different to all your other code. It's not consistent with it. In fact, it's also really familiar. This is my coding style. This is the coding style I have when I'm not trying to fit in with somebody else's coding style. As I've written this as a standalone example, I wasn't trying to fit in with their style. But it's there in their production system. And this happened twice more at this company, that code I had given to them as just like, you need something like this, had become this. So pretty much from that point on, I wrote, tests for everything that I gave them, even if it was throwaway code. Because it turns out one of the things, we, we, a phrase we use in software a lot is throwaway code. Very rarely does code ever get thrown away. You know, you can ask somebody, you ask your colleague, give me that throwaway code. You know, you, you were working on it a couple of weeks ago. Do you still have it? Oh, yeah, I do. Well, they didn't throw it away. You know, the throwaway metaphor is very clear on this. It turns out this stuff um, can't last forever. So there, there's an accidental moral, moral responsibility I discovered I had in handing over code. It can't just be, you know, a suggestive of oh, something like this. Actually, it needed to be actually kind of production ready. Um, so if we have these kind of ideas of changing context. We get surprise, um, um, you know, what I think is a whiteboard context suddenly becomes a production context. What I also think is that we are surprised by changes and we don't keep track of them. Um, you know, I worked on some systems 
a number of years ago, uh, SCADA systems uh, that manage that uh, basically deal with the electricity network. And we put in pretty light security because we didn't think anybody would ever be dumb enough to put something as fundamental as um, the electricity grid on a public network. We genuinely thought that was not a thing. We just thought you'd have to be mad to do that. <laughs> I know where this story is going. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, fortunately, um, fortunately, before it had a very bad ending, um, that realisation was, uh, the bandwidth also got better. One of the reasons we cared a great deal um, uh, about, you know, I put together this protocol that was very, very lightweight and it wasn't very secure and we, we kind of had all these discussions because we were pretty much communicating down wet pieces of strip and using a security based encryption would have actually chewed up our bandwidth um, but we thought that shouldn't be a problem um, fortunately bandwidth got better as the realization dawned um, that actually people were going to put this on public networks and that was a possibility um, so you know that 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 was a change in context that we had not um, estimated. I will say though, in our favour, we not only anticipated the year 2000 problem, we also anticipated the year 2038 problem. So we were ahead of most of the industry, but we, you know, we, we had a one blind spot, which was how people connect and whether or not we need this level of security. Um, and that was a shift in context. And I think we see this, we see this every day. Um, you know, particularly now where, you know, an algorithm has a carbon footprint. <laughs> if everything's going into the cloud, it turns out the efficiency of your code. Uh, has a uh, consequence that goes beyond your PC, for example. Mm. Well, I, I think also there's this... Um, Small, you're kind of talking about small changes in context, but we yeah. also get hit by large changes in context that we can't predict. Yeah. Uh, which obviously we've just all been through a really large example of, yes. um, of a pandemic and how we had to respond, I guess, in a physical sense, people. Yeah. To the presence of this pandemic. Um, what what was your experience through that? Yeah, I think that was that was that was quite interesting because I think the pandemic is one of those experiences that affected everyone differently. It's kind of everybody has a slightly different story. Um, you know, um, for me, in theory, I, I work I work for myself, so in one sense, there's there's the idea of like, well, you're working from home in that sense, so perhaps it doesn't affect you. Well, it turns out that what I do is actually on people's sites. In other words, I run workshops, I run training courses, I do consultancy, and I give talks. And that's a very, that's geographically, although I am based at home, uh, that is my official business address, um, the delivery of what, uh, a lot of what I do is based on the site. Um, and uh, that had a huge effect um, uh, on me because uh, initially, a lot of people cancelled or um, postponed work because there was no sense of how long this is going to go on for. Um, and then that kind of vacuum um, kind of uh, kind of reversed, uh, where everybody suddenly realised this might be going on for a bit longer. And actually, we probably still need to keep people, uh, give them a social sense. Um, so suddenly, I found myself doing, funny enough, a lot of talks. Uh, I wanted a lot of 
talks to kind of like say here you know here, here's a thing you know give give our developers something other than them just sitting at home um, working on stuff. So for me that changed the balance of my work, but I also changed the nature of my work in terms of running workshops and training courses um, and even consultancy. I spread it out because that's something that I don't need to be geographically co-located for. So suddenly I discovered that the, the shape of my work changed. Um, the interesting thing was getting jet lag without leaving my own house. Um, that was an interesting one. I'm not entirely sure I recommend it, but it was a lower carbon footprint. You know, so do, doing something in Australia um, meant me getting up very, very early and actually, you know, working in half days. I, I finished my half day when my family got breakfast. So you know, that that was kind of an interesting one. But for other people, they have been able to continue their work. Um, at home. So there are some people who are already working um, from home, in other words, developing uh, their primary focus was development, or they were already distributed companies or quasi-distributed. And they kind of were already halfway there. Now, obviously, that doesn't talk about the mental health consequences um, of this uh, this, uh, rather strange collective experience we've had. But from a functional day-to-day point of view, um, there was less disruption because their primary focus of work was already contained, was already handled by the distributed nature of everything. Yes, they could get their, they could already get their code. They were they had already been accessing their code from wherever they were. That was already something they'd been doing. They'd already been working on um, on the system they were working on, uh, using the tools that they were working on, and there was clearly a bit of a disruption, but not as much as um, other people experienced, uh, who were very, very office based. Um, and for whom the company setup was very geographically based, and there was a, there's a very strong office presence in some places, and perhaps a little weaker in others. Uh, so there's this huge disruption that has, uh, you know, been mediated, if you like, by technology. Um, and coming out of it, you you end up with some companies have said, you know, what we're going to do, you know, we're going to do mix of work from home and office offices. The the role of office, uh, the office or being together, physically co-located, has shifted a bit. Um, uh, whereas other companies want to kind of hit, you know, hit the time machine button and go back and say, actually, we're running exactly as it was three years ago, and that's how we're going to work. Um, other companies have decentralized completely. Um, and it, it, it's kind of, that's, we're in an industry that loves to talk about disruption, and this is a real disruption. This is not, this is not, you know, I, I kind of often joke about, you know, the idea, uh, often people like to talk about Uber being disruptive. Um, and it's just like, that's not disruption. Uh, <laughs> being able to get, being able to get, being able to get a taxi via, um, um, via, uh, via a handheld device was, yeah, I think we knew that was going to happen. What was, from a technology perspective, there was nothing disruptive about that. When we read the Uber files, it turns out the disruptive elements of Uber were actually their business practices, which were somewhat questionable. Let's just put it like that. That was the disruptive element. But when a real disruption came along, um, I think we were one a little bit surprised, but also in one sense curiously well prepared at one level. I think technology, had this happened 10 years ago, it would have been very different. And I'm thinking of the schooling experience of my kids, or my younger one at least, um, and actually the university experience of my older one. 10 years ago, the ability to continue ed- education in any form um, right. whilst not present in school would have been far, far harder. And um, uh, although we already we currently still have a haves and have nots situation, um, 
uh, it would have been much more the have-nots um, that were in the majority in terms of access to appropriate technology uh, and a space in their home where they could be studying. Um, that is the, the number of uh, digital devices per household now versus 10 years ago is, is, uh, is radically different. 10 years before that, even more radically different. Um, people were still using dial-up and stuff like that 20 years ago. So there is a huge shift in what technologies allowed us to do um, uh, to kind of weather this. Um, but I still think that the consequences of it are not, I don't think we fully worked those out. And some companies are being very, um, very open, very forward looking. Um, others are trying to come down with one rule that simplifies everything. Um, you know, you've got to be in the office these days or you've got to be in the office all the time or you've not got to be in the office at all. Um, and, and so, you know, we're not quite there as in, um, have negotiated a, a kind of a, a recognition of um, how much flexibility people want, but also how much sociability they want. We've learned that human contact matters. We've also learned that work can be flexible for certain disciplines and technology as one of those disciplines. Right. And and everyone's affected different, differently as an individual, yeah. right? So it's, yeah. it's some, something that's taken away from us. And some people have gone, huh. You know what? Turns out, I never needed that. And some people have gone, yeah. oh, oh my goodness, it's back, it's back. Yes, <laughs> yes. Don't ever let it go away again. Yeah, I've definitely had that reaction myself. In other words, I've I've adjusted my work patterns and. Um, you know, I, I kind of enjoyed the fact that actually I don't, I got into the habit of traveling and I was just like, actually, I don't need to travel that much. Um, I can reduce that, but I do like human contact. Um, so the, it, it's trying to find that balance. It turns out there are a whole load of things that were not necessary and now I know which ones are necessary or I feel are fundamental. Um, uh, to the way that I work. Um, and so, yeah, it gave us a, an accidental moment of clarity. Um, well, and disruptions and, and obviously I appreciate that to look forward at all we fall into the exact trap that you mentioned earlier in that by predicting things we can get fixated on them yeah but it is looking pretty likely that there will be an upcoming recession yes and, yes. and what what is the, the answer <laughs> I mean what what answers I suppose can technology bring and what's the impact going to be on people working in technology? Oh, that's an interesting one. Yeah. So predicting the future is 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 always um, is always interesting. Um, but at the moment, all of the signs are definitely um, uh, in a number of countries, but particularly the UK, uh, a recession is very much on the cards. All the indicators uh, point in that direction. But what is interesting from the technology point of view is I think a lot of people working technology are going to be insulated from this um, because technology is the thing that is still on the rise. Um, there is still a lot of demand for new software, new sites. Um, uh, as as it were, to, to either automate things or make certain things more possible. Uh, there's this uh, connectivity kind of feeds itself, if you like, um, and that's one of the main drivers. It's not just people wanting a software application. It's the fact that everything is connected to everything else. Um, that if you are trying to offer, you know, it, it doesn't matter if you are a health service uh, or you're trying to um, uh, send people pizzas. Um, it, it's it's all it's you know if you're not online, then you're not anywhere in one sense. So the demand for 
people in software and associated technologies is going to continue rising um, in spite of, and perhaps in some quarters because of the recession. Um, so, so that's the that's the thing. So there's there's the one thing is that uh, this now gives a number of technologists perhaps a, an un, an accidentally privileged view um, is that they may not see the recession that is happening around them. They may not see. Uh, the cost of living crisis that, are, that is around them in the same way that other people um, do and experience it. Um, so yeah, I think there's a lot that can be that can be done, um, and certainly, you know, streamlining access to services where they exist is is one of the things I regard as incredibly important. Um, yeah, this we we have this. Uh, uh, Wonderful magic that we've created uh, that allows us to access all the world's knowledge and, you know, pretty much all of the services in theory. But in practice, we are still frustrated by uh, bureaucracy uh, and barriers um, that get in our way. But people are trying to overcome those. If they can't do it politically, then it turns out that technologically is the way that people are often going to go. So, you know, I don't have anything specific to offer. I think. And I want to be very cautious about saying technology is the answer to it, because I think it's also um, it's the, it's also created a number of problems. It is uh, it's, it's a it's a, a blade with at least two edges, quite possibly more. I love this. Technology technology is the answer, and it's also the problem. <laughs> yes, very much so. Yeah. You solve it. You get a pandemic. You solve it with technology. You get a recession. You solve it with technology. Yeah. And, and how did we get? Time, yeah, and how do we get in some of these situations? You know, they were uh, they were one they were technology or demand of one kind or another that led to it. So you know, it, it, these causes are not very direct uh, in many cases. Sometimes they're very indirect, but they they do fall the pattern. And um, something that's very close to my heart, and I feel like touches on all of the challenges in. Um, in technology, the all challenges of working in technology and trying to do the best job and get the best outcome uh, for for our stakeholders, which you like to say for a lot of pieces of technology is uh, the whole country or very large, uh, the whole world in some cases. And something I'm very keen on is how do you how do you do the best of that? You know that you can. How do you help? bring stakeholders with you and I suppose get the right decisions made. Yeah, I, I, this is an interesting one because I think it's one that we've, it's a business question that goes back at least as long as people have realised that there's a question to be answered there. Um, and I think a lot of it comes down to um, Communication, which is kind of a, you know, you kind of expect, you know, at this point I can imagine a motivational poster uh, popping up in the background. Um, but it's, uh, it's, it's more to do with the quality or the nature or the purpose of communication. I think we don't just want more communication. We want to be very clear about what it involves. And there's a sort of an element of um, the, the idea of working, whoever the stakeholders are, is, is that idea of working with them, whereas in a lot of businesses, and particularly where we are dealing with you know, manufacturing uh, or physical items, uh, uh, not even just manufacturing, I, I mentioned pizzas earlier, actually, that, that also um, fits into this, where we have the idea of physical handoff. And in software, software is knowledge work. We are normally trying to shape and understand somebody else's domain, um, bringing to it knowledge about a technical domain. In other words, okay, this is how you 
going to do your business. These are your objectives. And, you know, here I've got, you know, the, uh, this concept of architecture uh, and these frameworks and these programming languages and, and, and experience in this. And I'm trying to take that knowledge and try to work out how can that knowledge meet this business and shape it and help move it forward. It's it's very flexible stuff. It's um, it's it's not product that you hand off. It's it's thought stuff. It's knowledge. So there's this idea of genuinely working with somebody rather than receiving a handoff. Now historically, I, I've seen this in a number of cases uh, where people say, "Oh well, you know, we you know uh, hand off the requirements to, or we ask them to build us." And then, and you know, they're working for the same company. This is always yeah. interesting. Whenever you have them and us and in the same company, it kind of shows you it's just like, oh, it's all you. Um, you're all one. It just happens that, um, and, and you get it with developers as well. And it, it, it's, it's the, the developers talk about the business as if it's separate, as if they're outside it when they're working for the company. They are, in most cases, they are the business. Um, you know, this is something I've, I've done work, work in the past for, for banks, and I remember, you know, there, there was a two thousands. There was a kind of a, there were a few reports floating around from these kind of self-styled um, uh, white paper-based companies um, floating around about you know IT as an overhead and all that. Rather, it's not. It's not. You know, it's it's, it's an add-on. It's an overhead. It's a it's a separate entity. And I remember thinking at the time, it's like if you don't have IT, you don't actually have a bank. Yeah. You don't actually have a business. And that uh, and whatever was true then is even more true now. Um, there is no them and us. Um, it, it needs to be understood in that sense that, yeah, you are working, you, know, you are on the team, basically. If you are a stakeholder, you need to consider yourself more to be on the team. Knowledge is not a, it's not a pizza that you hand off to somebody else. You, you know, it's knowledge is very, it's very fluid, quite literally very fluid. In fact, I, there's quite a good way of uh, uh, demonstrating why handoffs don't work in this case. Um, uh, particularly in large companies where, that are hierarchy based, if uh, if you imagine cupping your hands, and this is obviously a lot easier if you will be doing this video, but you can imagine this: <laughs> cup your hands, and I'm going to pour some water into the into your cupped hands, and you can retain that. There's a little bit that leaks out, but you, you know that's that's one. That's not all the knowledge that I have about my domain, but I'm going to give you some of it, and some of it's going to leak out, and then you're going to pass it on to somebody else and say, "Here's what I've understood from Kevin." And they're going to receive it in their hands and they will get a little less. And if you keep doing this, you end up with the person at the end just gets a wet handshake yeah. and nothing more. But what's happened is that loss of knowledge. You get that, you retain that by all being in the room at the same, uh, at the same time. Um, you know, this is the thing that we sometimes, many approaches try to do. Um, you know, it's the idea of a, a, a sprint demo in Scrum, but that's still at the end of something. There's this idea of multiple, working much more closely together. Extreme programming, actually, in the, in the uh, late 90s, um, kind of gave us an idea of what this should be like. They, they had this idea of an on-site customer, or the customer is on the team. Um, you have the stakeholder there all the time. Um, and I've seen this in a couple of places where people were, I think the term used, I think it's fallen by the wayside, was peer programming. You had a domain expert, and then you had a, and then you had a programmer, and they were together, and clearly... One knew the domain and the other knew the code, and they were basically having an extended conversation that was turned into code and then run. And that level of cooperation um, is a very different kind of thing. And working as a team. And yeah, yeah. just like all the technologies that we're working with, we are all uh, interconnected and interdependent. 
And yes. I think it's so important and so important to remember that from from a people level. And um, that's been so fantastic. Thank you so much, Kevin. I uh, I have not enjoyed a lunchtime this much for for a long time. Absolutely fantastic. Thank you, Zoe. Um, I'd like to remind everyone that we have some more events coming up at Software, and you can see those on our website. Uh, on the 20th of October, uh, we're going to have a talk on artificial intelligence uh, in our Software Manchester office. So you will need to uh, be physically located in Manchester for this one. Uh, and we have a speaker, Sean Williams, who is the founder and CEO of Autogen AI talking about the the technology that underpins what they're doing and the changes in, um, in AI development, which is super exciting. Um, we then, on Thursday, the 3rd of November, we've got a breakfast event um, covering accelerating digital innovation in the media and entertainment uh, sector. So all of this, is, all the details are on our website, www.software.com. So yeah, thank you all so much for joining us and uh, enjoy your day.